Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Morrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below. First, let me just say thank you. It is so wonderful having you here today. It is wonderful being honored with the John F. Morgan Senior Distinguished Faculty Lecturer. And it is wonderful to be at Emory. I wanted to talk about white rage. And I know it sounds crazy, but let me talk about how a black woman got to white rage. <laughs> and although it looks like it began with Ferguson, actually it began in February 1999, when a black man came home from a hard day's work. And he went home, got into his apartment, and realized there was no food. You know that when you come home, you worked hard, you look in the refrigerator, and the refrigerator's looking back at you. <laughs> and there's that moment where he's just, and he's like, oh, but he's in New York. And you know New York, the city that never sleeps. So you know there's gonna be food available. So he goes outside, he steps on his apartment, you know, the, the porch, and whoo, a car ro rolls up. Four officers of the NYPD hop out, guns drawn. 41 bullets later, Amadou Diallo goes down. 19 of those bullets hit. Amadou Diallo was unarmed. He had committed no crime. There was no warrant out for his arrest. He was just a black man in the Bronx. Now, that is bad enough. But then I'm watching Ted Koppel's Nightline and Mayor Rudy Giuliani is on. And Giuliani is just unrepentant. And Ted Koppel, as you know, is not a softball interviewer. And he is on Giuliani. He's like, Amadou, Amadou, Amadou. And Rudy's like, what? He barely says the man's name. What he does say, my policies are working. New York City is safer now than it has been in years. And he pulls out his little flip charts with a little graph showing crime going down. My policies are working. New York City is safer. And I'm thinking, it's not safer for Amadou. Safer for whom? And the policies that he's talking about it's the broken windows policing policy. That broken windows policing policy basically hyper-polices black and brown neighborhoods, criminalizing black people, criminalizing brown people. You jaywalk, the cops are on you. Drop some litter on the ground, cops are on you. You're standing, cops are on you. You're walking, cops are on you. You are getting ready to step off the curb. Cops are on you. That hyper-policing is the policy that Mayor Rudy Giuliani said was working. And while he talked about it, he said, and my police force is the most restrained and best behaved in the United States. I'm in Kafka land right now. <laughs> you know where, where Gregor Sampson is this big cockroach, but everybody's acting like it's normal, right? <laughs> you know, because I'm thinking most restrained and best behaved don't fire 41 bullets at an unarmed man. I know something is wrong, but I don't know how to name it. And you know, we have to name things in order to be able to face them, to be able to deal with them. And so I don't know what to call this thing. And I'm just going, Ugh. 
But as a scholar, I keep writing, I keep researching, I keep thinking, I keep teaching, I keep writing, I keep researching, I keep thinking. And then in August 2014, I'm at, in my home office and the TV is on. And I look up, whoo, and Ferguson is on fire. I mean, the flames are everywhere. And it didn't matter. I had the remote in my hand and I'm flipping the channels and it didn't matter. Let me see my left hand. It didn't matter if I'm MSNBC, watching MSNBC. Yeah. CNN or Fox. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Out this> door. <laughs> um, <laughs> it didn't matter. They all said the same thing. Look at black folks burning up where they live. Did you know that black people were burning up where they lived? Black folks are burning up where they live. What is wrong with black people? Burning up where they, who burns up where they live? Because one of the things you begin to understand is that America needs the narrative of black pathology. You know, everything would be fine if only black folks would, right? We've heard this. And then you begin to fill in the blank. If only they would value education. If only they would not be thugs. If only they would, you fill in the blank in terms of that black pathology, because that is absolutely necessary in the narrative of America. And so there I'm watching MSNBC, CNN, and Fox, all with the same narrative of black pathology, this black rage they're talking about. Well, I'm sitting up there and I'm shaking my head. You know how you're shaking your head like, mm-mm, mm-mm. And then I realized I'm looking shoulder to shoulder to shoulder to shoulder. I'm shaking my head so hard. And I said, no, this is white rage. Ooh. Ooh. This is white rage. I had lived in Missouri for 13 years. I saw the way that policy worked. I saw the way that policy systematically and systemically undermined African-Americans' access to their citizenship rights. But as a nation, we were so focused in on the flames that we missed the kindling. That kindling, let's talk about some of that kindling at Ferguson. Kindling. 67% of Ferguson's population is African-American. In the 2013 municipal election, the black voter turnout rate was 6%. How do you turn 67% of the population into 6% of the voters? Those are numbers from Jim Crow, Alabama. You do it via a series of policies, the ways that you hold your elections, the ways that you craft your ballots. There's a whole series of tricks that you can use to change 67% into six. Kindling. Because you begin to think about what it means if you don't believe that you even have a say in who your representatives are. Kindling. Let's talk about the schools. Michael Brown school system. Missouri rates its school systems. It, it accredits them on, on a 140 point scale. Graduation rates, uh, matriculation rates, test scores, the whole nine yards. And you can get a total of 140 points. How many points do you think Michael Brown school system got? How many? on 140. Good 20. That's a good one, Eric. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. 20 out of 140, right? Any, anybody else? 10. Ten. Whoa. Aren't <laughs> okay, I believe that's called cheating. <laughs> 10. 10 out of 140 points for fifth 
15 years. What that means then is that the public policy leadership was very comfortable with pulling an entire generation of black children through a school system that could garner no more than 10 points, an entire generation, and then start pulling another generation through because we're at 15 points from K through 12. Kindling. Kindling, let's talk about the police. We know that the police are here to Protect and serve, yeah, because I'm going to be doing this throughout because there's a kind of hymn book that we sing from, right? <laughs> we know, right? We know the police are here to protect and serve. So in this protect and serve, except in Ferguson, they looked at that black population as revenue generators. So you're doing 26 and a 25, boom, ticket. I don't think you fully stopped at that stop sign. Boom, ticket. Ah, looks like you've got a broken tail light. Boom, ticket. And this is a working class neighborhood. And so when you start hitting this neighborhood, this community with $50 tickets, $25 tickets, $80 tickets, $100 tickets, and you begin to think about what that means. You pay the ticket or you pay your rent. You pay the ticket or you keep food on the table. You keep the lights on. There's not disposable income here. When you don't pay that ticket, the next time you're doing 26 and a 25, because now there's a warrant out for your arrest. Then you are jailed. And then the entire criminal justice process of fines and court fees and bail are all pulling from this working class black community. By the time when Ferguson blew, those fines and those tickets accounted for 25% of Ferguson's operating budget. 25%. And let me be really clear, justice was not blind. Justice, in fact, had, what did you call it? Had Lasix. Because <laughs> justice was, so if the police would happen to stop somebody white and try to hand them a ticket and go, ooh, ooh, sorry, sorry, not you. Or if the police officer handed somebody white a ticket and somebody white went in to go then pay the ticket, it was like, what are you doing? I'm trying to pay this ticket and to tear up the ticket. So you're getting this massive extraction from the working class black population in Ferguson. Kindling. And so as I began to think about this kindling, I began to think about the way that white rage worked. White rage is not about visible violence. We often think of rage as visible. We often think of the racism as this visible thing. But white rage is subtle. It is corrosive. It operates through the state legislatures, through Congress, through the judiciary, through school boards. It cloaks itself in legalities. And so I set out, and so because it's so quiet, it's so subtle, you don't see it. And so I set out to blow graphite onto that fingerprint to be able to trace white rage throughout time, not all the way back to time immemorial with the dinosaurs, <laughs> but at least up to the Civil War all the way through to 2016. And one of the things that became clear to me as I started thinking through how white rage works, is it became clear to me that the presence of black people was not the trigger for white rage. There's that stun, almost what you're talking about, Willis, look. <laughs> it is the presence of black people with ambition. The presence of black people with drive. The presence of black people with aspirations. The presence of black people who achieve. It's the presence of black people who refuse to accept their subjugation 
the presence of black people who demand their rights. That's the trigger for white rage. And this society has therefore punished black resilience and black resolve. Now, at this point, this sounds like almost Scooby-Doo-ish, right? Because we know it's so counterintuitive because we think of the US, America, as the land of opportunity, right? And so all you've got to do is work hard, yes. And I'm telling you, y'all know the hymn. <laughs> right? So, so my baritone's here. <laughs> we know the hymn. We don't even have to pull out the book. It is in the ether. It's in the cultural language that we understand how this nation works. But so what happens if you have a series of policies that in fact punish black achievement, black aspiration? And it sounds counterintuitive, but how else can you explain how government after government after government has worked so hard to see to it that black children do not get a quality <laughs> education? Let me give you a couple of examples. In 1947, in Prince Edward County, Virginia, the school board finally agreed to build a high school for the black children. Because remember, this is a completely segregated system. Jim Crowed. And so in 47, that would be after the US helped defeat the Nazis. I need to put that in its time frame. Then we get a high school for black children in Prince Edward County. Within a few years, that school is bursting at the seams. Two to three times as many children are in this space than that building can hold. And so the black parents are going to the school board, the all-white school board, saying, we need an additional school. We've got kids bursting at the seam. It's doggone near impossible for them to learn sitting one on top of the other like that. We need a new building. The school board was like, no. And the parents are pushing hard, unrelenting demanding education for their children. And the school board finally relented and put up three tar paper shacks and said, your kids can go there. Now, meanwhile, the white school is nice brick with indoor plumbing, which is not available in the black high school. In 19, by this time, we're in 1951. So there was a, a a young woman, Barbara Johns, 17. And Barbara Johns was like, my name is the wrong one. <laughs> you gonna take this? You gonna take this? No, you're not taking this. You gonna take this? Yeah, you're like, no, we gonna walk on out of here, aren't we? And she starts organizing that school for a massive walkout, a massive demonstration saying, we're not having this. We're not having it. They rose up and boom, hit the door. Administrators were like, what, what just happened here? And they were like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now it was, she wasn't playing. And so the death threats started coming in on this 17 year old child who was demanding quality education. It was so bad that her parents had to spirit her away to safety to Alabama. <laughs> Boom, I rest my case. <laughs> you know when you got to go to Alabama for safety in 1951. <laughs> Woo! Woo! Meanwhile, Prince Edward County becomes one of the school districts that's bundled into the Brown case. Now, when Brown came down, Prince Edward County said, oh, I got something real for you. And so what the town fathers working with the state legislature decided to do was to shut down the entire public school system. 
Because that way, if we've got to have equal schools, then black children and white children equally do not have access to a public school. <laughs> and you can almost hear the, aren't I smart, <laughs> written on them. Except, you know, so black parents are like, what? But they're not listening to black parents. White parents are like, what? And they're like, oh, no, 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 we got this. You know we're not going to let your white babies go, you know, go uneducated. You know that. And so what they have done is that they have set up taxpayer-funded vouchers to pay for the tuition for white children to go to all white segregated private academies. So white children continue to be educated and there is absolutely nothing for black children, thousands upon thousands of black children. And it wasn't just in Prince Edward County, this was in areas throughout the South. And when these schools are shut down, let me, Prince Edward County is shut down for five years. Begin to think about that. You're in the fifth grade. When your school opens up again, you're supposed to be in the 10th. Think about everything that you have lost in those precious five years. And this is at that moment where the U.S. economy is beginning to transform from a manufacturing-based economy to a technology-driven, knowledge-based economy. And we have all of these black children that the governments and the school boards have said will not be educated, period. What does this mean? Let me give you some sense of the, of the power of white rage. So Brown won, and I see law professor Robert Shapiro here, Brown won. 1954, where separate but equal has no place in public education. Did I quote that right? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Brown 2, 1955. This is the implementation decision with all deliberate speed. 1956, 101 U.S. congressmen and senators dug in, signed the Southern Manifesto, vowing massive resistance to the Supreme Court decision. We will use every lever of power within our control to fight this thing. 1957, radio signals pick up, beep, beep. And you hear President Eisenhower going, dang, 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 because beep is Sputnik. The Soviets have launched a satellite into the air, into orbit, and it is a technological feat that the U.S. did not believe that the Soviets could master. But not, it's more than that. The Soviets have their nuclear arsenal. But the U.S. is thinking, yeah, but they don't know how to get over the Atlantic or the Pacific. <laughs> We're good. You know, so we'll have some forward bases for our allies in Europe and our allies in Asia. But ha, we're good. Beep. <laughs> Beep. <laughs> and so the federal government does something that it hadn't done before. It pledges hundreds of millions of dollars into education to fund what they said would be the brain power to fight the Cold War. We need scientists and engineers to be able to counter, to outrun, to be able to outdo what the Soviets are mastering here. Now, this National Defense Education Act was huge, landmark. And it was being guided through Congress by two Alabamians. I think I just did spoiler alert. <laughs> so their concern was, hmm, we want that money. You, you know, universities like the money. 
They like the money. <laughs> you know, and when you're, the feds are putting up hundreds of millions of dollars to build labs and hire faculty and for postdocs, universities are like all on that. But Alabama was concerned because Alabama's not admitting black folk. Alabama has a whites only admissions policy. And we got the law of the land saying, no, nah, you can't do that. And so in this discussion with the Eisenhower administration, they're like, we will shepherd this bill through. We need to make sure that we do not have to abide by Brown. We need to make sure in financing the, the uh, brain power for the Cold War that we get to maintain Jim Crow in our admissions policies. And the federal government said, yeah, we're cool with that. And so I'm thinking Jim Crow, nuclear annihilation. Nuclear annihilation, nuclear annihilation. They're like, nah, son, Jim Crow. That's more important than being able to ensure that our citizens, our people, have the education that they need in this incredible critical moment. That's white rage. Anybody see hidden figures? Yeah. Think about what that would mean if we had had that kind of investment then. And think about where we are now as we're trying to figure out how do we get more African-Americans into STEM fields when we have systematically refused to invest in those schools, even after Brown. Let me give, us an give you another example. <clears throat> the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. We can really have church up in here now. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> On the war on drugs, because one of the ways that white rage works is it cloaks itself in reasonableness. We have to keep our community safe. We have to protect our children. We have to ensure safety and security for our neighborhoods. And who doesn't want a safe and secure neighborhood? Who doesn't want to protect our children? It sounds reasonable. But how is it then? Because the research is really clear that we have focused the war on drugs, on the population that does drugs the least when it comes to cocaine. The least and about the same when it comes to marijuana. How is it in the war on drugs we have targeted those who do it the least. How is it that we have spent $1 trillion? That's real money. That's even beyond university money, isn't it? <laughs> That's with a T. $1 trillion on the war on drugs. The war on drugs has destabilized state budgets. When you think about public education, I remember when I worked in Ohio for the Board of Regents, one of the things that we were fighting for was to try to get enough state money into higher education in order to drive the tuition down so that more and more students would be able to afford college. Instead, that money went immediately into the corrections budget. You can almost map, like in California, the dollar-to-dollar -dollar exchange coming out of the University of California budget going into the corrections budget. And I just saw a figure that said it costs more now to incarcerate someone in California than it does to send them through Harvard. So this is not an issue of resources. This is an issue of priorities. And so you're asking yourself, now self, because that's how I talk to myself. <laughs> Self, what could, could, could drive this kind of thing where as a nation we're spending one trillion 
where we would destabilize our state budgets, where we would block out access to higher education for our, our own folk. How, how, but then when you realize that the war on drugs really began to emerge after the civil rights movement and those incredible gains. The 1964 Civil Rights Act and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Hard fought for, blood all along the way. But if you have a felony conviction, which is what mass incarceration does, all of a sudden your access to the non-discrimination clauses in the Civil Rights Act, there are things you cannot do with a felony conviction. There are places you cannot live. There are student loans you cannot have access to. So you cannot go to school if you've got that felony conviction. And you wanna talk about the right to vote? Ooh, let's take Florida. Okay, I hear some folks like, yeah, take it. <laughs> let's take Florida. In Florida, Florida has what they call permanent felony disfranchisement. Now, what that means, because it's not quite permanent, but after you serve your sentence and then your, your time out, like parole, then you have to wait 14 years from that moment to then be able to individually petition the governor asking for your voting rights back. What that means is that when you look at Florida, about 40% of black men are not able to vote in Florida because of felony disfranchisement, 40%. Overall for African-Americans is somewhere between 23 to 25% of voting age eligible African-Americans cannot vote in Florida. Now, Florida doesn't mind counting their heads when it comes to the census in order to get the number of representatives in Congress. It's just though that those folks do not have any kind of say in who their representatives will be in a representative democracy. It reminds me of the three-fifths clause. So while I'm talking about the vote, let me just move on to that next piece. In 2008, Barack Obama was elected president of the United States. Seems like a long time ago, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and the way that he did it though, is that through his organization, that organizing com a capacity in those communities, 15 million new voters came to the polls in 2008. 15 million. Now, what we say as a democracy is that we love that because that means then that people aren't alienated, that they believe they have a stake in this nation, that they believe that they, they, they have a buy-in. Because what we know is that if you have masses of alienated people in your society, your society is getting ready to quake. But having people buying in, believing they have a stake, 15 million. And then let me give you some, some of the data, the demographic data on that 15 million. Two million were African-American. That's almost a third of Atlanta. Think about that in terms of two million were Hispanic. 600,000 were Asian Americans. And almost doubling the percentage of those who made less than $15,000 a year. That's also known as I be broke, okay? 15,000. So to double, almost double that percentage. So think about that. This is a kind of demographic richness. It's the kind of demographic diversity that is really beginning to speak to America. This is the kind of thing we should be embracing because you get black folk coming to the polls. 
the response was massive voter suppression that specifically targeted those very groups. Voter suppression that went after African-Americans, Hispanics, Asian-Americans, and the poor. Let me give you a couple of examples of the, about the way that this policy works, like voter ID. So one of the things, again, masking itself in, hmm, is that you've got voter fraud. We heard about voter fraud? We have rampant voter fraud. <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> and, and we have to protect the integrity of the ballot box from this voter fraud. Now, Justin Levitt, a law professor out of California, actually ran the numbers. And he found that from 2000 to 2014, there were one billion votes and 31 cases of voter impersonation fraud. 31 is rampant. <laughs> but under the myth, the lie of voter fraud, one of the things that we see coming to the fore is the demand for voter ID. Now, again, it sounds innocuous. We have a major problem, voter fraud. We're only requiring people to have ID. It sounds simple enough. But the way that it works, like in Alabama, let's start with Alabama. In Alabama, in fact, in 2011, Alabama passed a voter ID law, but they knew that this law could not get through the Department of Justice, where Alabama had to have preclearance via the Voter Rights Act to get any of the laws that it was changing in terms of voters through the Department of Justice. And so, and, and what that meant, for instance, is that the Republicans taped themselves saying things like, we've got to figure out how to depress the black voter turnout. Okay, I'm thinking that's a smoking gun. And you know, we've got these aborigines and these illiterates who will get on these HUD finance buses and drive themselves to the polls. So they know that this law is not gonna get through the Department of Justice. But the moment, virtually the moment that the Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act with the Shelby County Beholder decision in 2013, Alabama implemented that law. The way that the law works is it says you must have a government-issued photo ID to vote. Okay. And so in Alabama, Alabama's a poor state. It's ranked number 47th or 48th in terms of poverty. That's poor. And so you have a lot of folks in public housing. In fact, 71% of the people in public housing are African-American in Alabama. Alabama decided that public housing ID would not count in order to be able to vote. Now, I'm like, I don't think it gets more government issued than public housing. <laughs> but you see, in that one move, what you're able to do is you're able to wipe away black folk and poor folk by crafting which IDs are acceptable to be able to vote. And this is a, 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 a mechanism that we will see throughout. Then what Alabama did, <laughs> Alabama, the governor then shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles in the Black Belt counties. The Black Belt counties are the counties that have a sizable to majority black population. So when you shut down the Department of Motor Vehicles, then that means that you've got to go a couple of counties over in order to be able to get the, the, the ID that you need in order to be able to vote, except you don't have a driver's license. And Alabama is ranked 48th in the nation in terms of public transportation. So you don't have public transportation to get there. Again, it looks innocuous on the surface, but the ways that the policy works, it is designed to destroy African-Americans' access to the ballot box. That victory that was won in 1965. I could go on. <laughs> I really could. Yeah, I'm gonna go on just a bit more. 
because this stuff is crazy. So you take Texas. In Texas, Texas, Texas required a government-issued photo ID. Then said your student ID, like from the University of Texas, which would be a state-funded institution university, would not count. But your government, your, your, I'm sorry, your concealed gun permit would. So your gun permit counts and your student ID does not. Again, this is a way you can begin to shape the electorate in terms of who has access to the polls. What Texas also did is that only in about one third of the counties in Texas is there a Department of Motor Vehicles. Only in one third. And so Texas, in fact, when they were drawing up the law, SB 14, they figured out that for almost two million of, the pe of their citizens, it was going to be about a 125 mile one way trip to the nearest Department of Motor Vehicles, which means a 250 mile round trip. And so initially in the law, they had, we will reimburse you. But right before that law passed, they drew a line through the reimbursement. So now you have to figure out how to make a 250 mile round trip without a driver's license, without public transportation, to be able to get the card that you need to be able to vote. This is how you shape the electorate. This is how you begin to punish black people and brown people for voting and poor people and Asians. This is how you do it. And understand that all of this was done without a Klan cross burning. All of this was done with folks in judicial robes, not white sheets. This is how white rage works. The impact, for instance, of voter suppression in the 2016 election, you know, I talk about that kind of black pathology language that we have. You know, so after the election, how many of you heard, well, you know, black folks just didn't turn out to vote? You know? Mm-hmm. This was the first election in 50 years without the protections of the Voting Rights Act. Black voter turnout went down by 7%. Voter suppression works. What I'd like to do now is just read a couple of sections from the book. And now I gotta get my glasses on because I'm no longer 25. <laughs> And um, the one section I'm going to read deals with um, the war on drugs. And I start off by noting, here we go. I start off by noting the, the, what Michelle Alexander has done in going through and noting how in key uh, Supreme Court cases, Racism has been embedded in the operating code of the war on drugs. Taken together, those rulings allowed, indeed encouraged, the criminal justice system to run racially amok. And that's exactly what happened on July 23, 1999 in Tulia, Texas. In the dead of night, local police launched a massive raid and busted a major cocaine trafficking ring. At least that's how it was billed by the local media, which, after having been tipped off, lined up to get the best, most humiliating photographs of 46 of the town's 5,000 residents, handcuffed, in pajamas, underwear, and uncombed bed hair, being paraded into the jail for booking. The local newspaper, the Tulia Sentinel, ran the headline, Tulia Streets Cleared of Garbage. The editorial praised law enforcement for ridding Tulia of drug dealing scumbags. The raid was the result of an 18 month investigation by a man who would be named by Texas's attorney general as outstanding lawman of the year. Tom Coleman didn't lead a team of investigators. Instead, he single handedly identified 
each member of this massive cocaine operation and made more than 100 drug undercover, undercover drug purchases. He was hailed as a hero and his testimony immediately led to 38 of the 46 being convicted with other cases just waiting to get into the clogged court system. Joe Moore, a pig farmer, was sentenced to 99 years for selling $200 worth of cocaine. Kizzy White received 25 years, while her husband, William Cash Love, landed 434 years for possessing an ounce of cocaine. The case began to unravel, however, when Kizzy's sister Tanya went to trial. Coleman swore that she had sold him drugs. Tanya, however, had video proof that she was at a bank in Oklahoma City, 300 miles away, cashing a check at the very moment he claimed to have bought drugs from her. Then another defendant, Billy Don Wafer, had timesheets and his boss's eyewitness testimony that Wafer was at work and not out selling drugs to Coleman. And when the outstanding lawman of the year swore under oath that he had purchased cocaine from Ewell Bryant, a tall, bushy-haired man, only to have Bryant, bald and five foot six, appear in court, it finally became very clear that something was awry. Coleman, in fact, had no proof whatsoever that any of the alleged drug deals had taken place. There were no audio tapes, no photographs, no witnesses, no other police officers present, no fingerprints but his on the bags of drugs, no records. Over the span of an 18-month investigation, he never wore a wire. Now, he claimed to have written each drug transaction on his leg. <laughs> but to have washed away the evidence when he showered. <laughs> and I'm thinking either the boy hasn't showered in 18 months. <laughs> Never mind. Additional investigation led to no corroborating proof of his allegations. And when the police arrested those 46, people and vigorously searched their homes, no drugs were found, nor were weapons, money, paraphernalia, or any other indications at all that the housewife, pig farmer, or anyone else arrested were actually drug kingpins. What was discovered, however, was judicial misconduct running rampant in the war on drugs in Tulia, Texas, with a clear racial bias. Coleman had accused 10% of Tulia's black population of dealing in cocaine. Based on his word alone, 50% of all of the black men in town were indicted, convicted, and sentenced to prison. Randy Credico of the William Mosley's Consular Fund called Tulia a mass lynching. Taking down 50% of the male black adult population like that, it's outrageous. It's like being accused of raping someone in Indiana in the 1930s. You didn't do it, but it doesn't matter because a bunch of Klansmen on the jury are going to string you up anyway. But this wasn't 1930. It was the beginning of the 21st century with a powerful civil rights movement that had bridged those two eras. And finally, this is in the chapter, How to Unelect a Black President. Black respectability or appropriate behavior doesn't seem to matter. If anything, black achievement, black aspirations, and black success are construed as direct threats. Obama's presidency made that clear. Aspirations and their achievement provide no protection, not even to the God-fearing. On June 17, 2015, South Carolinian Dylan Roof, a white, unemployed, 21-year-old high school dropout, was on a mission to take his country back. Ever since George Zimmerman had walked out of the courthouse a free man after killing Trayvon Martin, and a racially polarized nation debated the verdict, Roof had looked to understand the history of America. Trolling through the internet, 
he stumbled across the Council of Conservative Citizens, the Tri-C, the progeny of the White Citizens Council of the 1950s that had terrorized black people, closed schools, and worked hand in hand with state governments to defy federal civil rights laws. Despite the group's avowed racist belief system, in the mid to late 1990s, the group boasted of having 34 members who were in the Mississippi legislature, including then Senate Majority Leader Trent Lott of Mississippi. By 2004, Mississippi Governor Haley Barber, chair of the Republican National Committee, and 37 other powerful politicians had all attended Tri-C events in the 21st century. Earl Holt III, who was chair of the Tri-C, gave $65,000 to Republican campaign funds in recent years, including donations to the 2016 presidential campaigns of Rand Paul, Rick Santorum, and Ted Cruz. The Tri-C then enjoyed precisely the cachet of respectability that racism requires to achieve its own goals within American society and its website of hatred and lies provided the self-serving education Dylan Roof so desperately craved. He drank in the poison of its message, got into his car, drove to Charleston, entered Emmanuel AME Church, and landed in a Bible study with a group of African-Americans who were the very model of respectability. Roof prayed with them, read the Bible with them, thought they were so nice. Then he shot them dead, leaving just one woman alive so that she could tell the world what he had done and why. You're taking over our country, he said, and he knew this to be true. Well, not even a full month after Dylan Roof gunned down nine African-Americans at Emanuel AME, Republican presidential frontrunner Donald Trump fired up his silent majority audience of thousands in July 2015 with a macabre promise. Don't worry, we'll take our country back. No, it's time instead that we take our country forward into the future, a better future. Thank you. Dear supporters of BLC, if you adore BLC and our free black history and audiobook content, donate via Patreon or get a print copy of the world-famous art pieces, The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book. The Marrow of Tradition by Charles Chestnut and Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl by Harriet Jacobs, bound together into just one practical book in the link below.